Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I have the real good pleasure of speaking with Jeffrey Hennig, who is the author of The End of Exceptionalism in American Education, The Changing Politics of School Reform. I hope you enjoy this interview. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and I have the real pleasure to talk with Jeff Hennig today, the author of The End of Exceptionalism in American Education, The Changing Politics of school reform. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm fine, Heath. How are you? Wonderful. I know a lot about who you are, um, but I always like to give people the chance to give a little bit of the background on, you know, what, what came before the publication of their new book. And so what's the, what's the snapshot of, of where you are now and, and, and what you're doing? Well, sure. I, I started as a political scientist, um, uh, my first position uh, where I met you, Heath, was at George Washington University, uh, where I was in the Department of Political Science. And my, my focus originally was urban politics generally, uh, without much of a attention to education uh, in particular. But over time, I increasingly became interested in education policy, education politics. And about uh, almost 11 years ago now, I moved from uh, George Washington up to Teachers College at Columbia, where I've run a politics and education program at, at Teachers College, and I'm also a member of the political science department at Columbia. Yeah, I, I find it absolutely shocking that that's been that long. So, uh, just about every publication I have, every job I've, I've had ever since GW has been, you know, a result of, of your mentoring and work, and so. Um, I call upon another favor for you today to talk about your book, and so it's, it was a real uh, enjoyable book to read, and one um, that I have the feeling in, in reading it that this was um, uh, your effort to write something big about school reform. Um, you know, though the, the book isn't long, the scope and breadth feels substantial. I wonder if this was your intention, and, and whether this is how you you pitched the book to the publisher. Well, I, I mean, I backed into the issue of the end of exceptionalism. I had written about mayoral control of schools quite a bit, uh, and mayoral control of schools, um, when you sort of get away from the sort of hot politics of the moment and think about what it means structurally, involved shifting key decisions from elected school boards and from governance institutions that were particular to school superintendents and school board members into arenas where general purpose politicians like mayors who have a lot of other things to think about besides just schools are calling the shots. I wrote and thought about mayoral control just on its own terms for a while until I was asked by a former colleague, Dorothy Schiffs, to write a chapter about mayors governors and presidents, education governors and education presidents. And it was while I was really working through that chapter that I began to think more about 
the fact that this shift, um, first of all, from general purpose to school, spe from school specific to general purpose institutions, uh, was multi-level, that this wasn't something that you could account for just by looking at what was going on in particular cities like Boston or New York or whatever. Uh, but also, you know, began to realize that even though the attention often goes to the executives, to mayors and governors and presidents, because they're the high-profile actors, that as education was migrating into these new arenas, uh, legislatures also became more involved. Um, and that, you know, that kind of big, broad uh, focus on on structural change in the education landscape, I think, you know, as I wrestled with it, I realized it was pretty new to me to frame it that way, and and that's what encouraged me to try to work it out through a book. Yeah, and you know, I, I've developed a two kind of interests as I've uh, been reading um, and, and and working on this podcast uh, uh, program, and one is a, is a real interest in titles. And the second interest is in these, these quotes that people often skip over right at the start of a chapter. I don't even know if these quotes have an actual name. But you, you start in Chapter 1 with a, a quote from Bob Dylan. Um, and without singing, the, the, lyric, uh, the, the, the lyric is, uh, and something is happening here, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? I wonder why you chose that quote. It's, uh, from what I gather, it's... Um, this is a song that, that is, is one of the, the high protest songs and is a real anti-establishment message to the song. Why, why this quote? What, is it, what does it mean? How does it set up the start of the book? Yeah, sure. Well, it wasn't, I wasn't sort of sneaking in an anti-war message. Um, uh, but um, there have been, I, I, I argue in, in, in the book, that there have been at least three very broad structural shifts going on over the last uh, several decades in, in American education, and two of them have gotten a lot of attention. One is the general uh, uh, shift within our federal system of substantial degree of uh, decision-making authority up the ladder from local districts to states and the national government. The second is a shift uh, to some considerable extent from public sector into private sector uh, delivery systems in particular in education, the vouchers and charter schools and the emergence of a large a non-profit charter management uh, uh, organization system, private uh, testing companies and, and publishers and the like, those two structural changes which are very important have gotten a lot of attention. The shift from school specific to general purpose government I think is of similar import but has happened under most people's radar screen partly because it's been slow and gradual though I know I won't get the details right but you know, there, there are experiments about what happens when you sort of throw a frog into a boiling pot of water versus when you sit a frog in a pot of water and slowly heat the water. And when change is gradual, 
uh, it often uh, just escapes notice. So those frogs who get thrown into the boiling water and jump out as quick as quick as they can, and the ones sitting there while the water slowly heats up to boiling stay and stay too long. And it's that part of the Dylan quote. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, 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 there's been things that people have noticed, teachers' unions notice that they don't have the clout that they used to have, for example. Um, and um, uh, ideas that have been prevalent in other parts of domestic policy, ideas like contracting out with private providers, like performance management systems generally, those ideas have all of a sudden gotten entry into education debates where for years they they did not. And my argument is those things that shift in who has influence at the core and the shift in the kinds of policy approaches that have credibility is uh, at least in large measure explained by this, this broader governance shift. And, and, and getting to this um, rela- relates to the title of the book and, and this idea of exceptionalism, which is not the same meaning that, that others um, have for either um, American exceptionalism or American education exceptionalism. What's the particular use that you're um, that you're using here? Yeah, sure. Um, so, as as you and most of your listeners know, I'm sure the term uh, American exceptionalism is often used to make the point that the U.S. is somehow different from other developed countries. Uh, often, at least in a politically charged uh, matter, it's used to assert that the U.S. is better in some ways in key values or institutions or ways of going about things. I'm not talking about that at all. Um, what I'm talking about is education as having been dealt differently from other domestic policy um, decisions, at least the major ones, uh, which have been uh, historically um, dealt with by general purpose government. So social welfare policy, transportation policy, housing policy, science policy, these things have been dealt with and we expect to be dealt with by bodies like Congress or state legislatures that are not expert in all respects that have to, you know, not only make decisions and draw priorities around things that they don't know everything about, but they 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 also are accustomed to negotiating and doing trade-offs across different kinds of policies as they put together an overall um, you know a, a agenda to pursue, um, and that's what education is becoming like, but has not been like, especially at the local uh, level where education decisions not only were. Uh, made and still are for the most part made by uh, separate school boards rather than city councils often with a dedicated revenue stream uh, so um, which can come from property taxes or, or whatever but so that the, the money uh, doesn't have to be traded off across multiple uh, purposes often the, the elections of school boards are deliberately set at a different time from the elections of uh, city council members and mayors and governors and presidents, so the 
electorate for those elections is is a different one from the general electorate. Um, that's been an important part of American history. We somehow, you know, we fell into it without some broad, you know, theoretical rationale for doing so. But it it affected the development of education for many decades. Uh, but me, you know, in a way that that was different from what was going on elsewhere. And my argument in the book is that that difference has been eroded. That education is being reabsorbed into general purpose uh, governments, not not to the uh, point where I expect school boards and school districts and uh, state boards of education to to disappear or to be pushed totally to the margin, but just uh, in, a, in a substantial way, they have less clout and less influence than they once did. Yeah. And- Along those lines, one of the had the the chance to talk to Jesse Rhodes, who wrote this book, I guess about six months ago, about No Child Left Behind. And he writes um, particularly about the the, the emergence of um, uh, a lot of sort of the the, the preceding policy uh, innovations that came before No Child Left Behind. He writes about the education governors, uh, particularly these southern governors that emerged in the 1980s and 90s, and and you write about the education governor, and you, you have a way in which you are able to identify who is and who isn't. I wonder if you just talk briefly about, you know, how you identified who is an education governor and, and, and what the analysis says about, about this larger thesis related to identifying uh, education governors. Sure. Well, you know, there's, you know, there's di- different ways that people have approached this, and actually I, I try to approach it several ways. Two of them are, are more traditional and one uh, I kind of made up on my own. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the two, you know, the two that are more traditional are to look at the formal powers of the governor. Uh, so some governors have more formal powers uh, um, over education. They get to appoint the school board, the state board of the, uh, education, for example, or even appoint the state um, uh, chief state school officer, the equivalent of state superintendent, whereas other governors don't have that formal power. So so one concept is education governors are those with the formal power. Another one is, and this is the way it's used more typically, and I think in your discussion with uh, Professor Rhodes, this is more the, the notion of governors who were, you know, educational entrepreneurs or political entrepreneurs, they spotted an opportunity to use education and education issues as a way to distinguish themselves as candidates and governors. Um, and that's largely a measure of kind of just visibility and involvement. I, I wanted to get beyond the formal uh, um, measures because it's pretty clear that some active governors don't have unusually strong formal powers and some governors with strong Formal powers don't use them, but I wanted to do it in a way where I could, at least in very broad stroke, look through the whole of American history, and and, and that's very tricky. Um, so what we did is we took advantage of the fact that the National Governors Association has compiled short bios of every governor ever, um, and we went into those descriptions in those bios and looked to see which governors were mentioned as having accomplished something in terms of education. And these are 
files of two, three paragraphs. So for education to work its way in there, it's got to have been at least a fairly prominent part of what they uh, did in office. And, and, and it's out of the coding of that that I'm able to come up with a rough indicator of the changes over time and the extent to which governors focused on education and across states, whether um, some states have had historically more active governors in education than others. And finally, to look at the extent to which the this kind of, you know, um, involvement in their of education, their agenda aligns with their formal powers or not. And the the trend seems to be an, an increase. So the, the empirical evidence that you collect is that, in fact, this this is increasing over the last couple of decades. Uh, yeah, that's right. Now I wouldn't, you know, hinge my whole story on on that method. If, you know, if, if, if you know, I had fun with that indicator. I think it's a useful indicator. It has it has limits, but you know, if you you know, it's confirmed by the fact that when you look at formal governor's powers, you know, which are codified in law, and so you can find them in a in a in a more straightforward and um, and reliable way, um, you know, that those those also show a growing role of of, of gubernatorial power. In the mayoral control literature, folks who write about that are used to, you know, defining this very simply and clearly by whether the mayor appoints the school board members. But we've been even earlier than than mayoral control emerged as kind of a newer form in the early 90s. A number of states have begun giving governors more formal control and selecting their state uh, boards of education. So just by, you know, by analogy, that kind of shift in authority has been going on. Right. Yeah, and, and so we have this big sh- shift, the central thesis of the book. Um, and, and there are some winners and losers here. Um, and, and you have a chapter on, on so the, the, the actors, the policy actors who have um, risen to the top in this, and I think part of your argument is not that the other actors have been completely displaced, but they're now there's now a, a richer array of, of different actors in the in the in the mix, as they would say. So, uh, but I think there are some winners and losers um, in this. And so, who has won out from this this shift that you describe, and and whose whose power or influence maybe has been pushed aside a little bit? Yeah, sure. And you know, some of this, and we can get to this in a second. May may evolve and change over time, but. But, but initially, there's no question that this shift um, has um, weakened to, to a certain extent the advantages that historically teachers, unions, and organized parents have had in school decisions. In these smaller school-specific arenas, teachers, unions were able to wield um, disproportionate influence because they could concentrate on and in some instances, elect um, you know school board members who are sympathetic to their views, and activist parents are the ones who, along with teachers, would show up at these elections. For example, these off-cycle elections where there'd be very low turnout overall, but you know you could count on teachers and parents to be the ones uh, pulling the levers. Now those teachers and parents are still very concerned about education, but they've got to compete in arenas in which other folks um, who care about other things 
are often asking for the attention of policymakers and for a piece of a, of a finite uh, public sector uh, pie. Now, the winners, it, it's a little bit uh, trickier uh, uh, to address, but I think one of the winners, at least so far, have been uh, private sector organizations, for-profit organizations, and not-for-profit organizations um, that um, that um, sell services um, or contract with government to provide services in a wide array of areas um, um, historically We've turned slowly to contracting with private providers to provide services for years. Education was the laggard, and now we're beginning to see those kind of groups, um, um, you know, gain entry, and they gain entry partly as providers of education services, a charter school, for example, um, or a, 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 a an organization that might provide professional development training for teachers um, or supplemental education services, tutoring for kids on the weekend. They, they enter as, as providers of education, but they also enter as political activists um, because they um, can and often do organize um, politically to exert influence um, uh, just like other interest groups do. Yeah, and, and, and you highlight in that chapter also the work that Sarah Reckow has done on philanthropic foundations. I had the chance to talk to her last week, and that, that fits very nicely into the, some of the story that you're telling about the, the role that they're playing and they've played last you know, two decades. That's right, and, and, and you know, there's a, there's a whole, both by the fact that they've been dealing with one another over time, but also by language and inclination and um, existing access channels, these private provider foundations and, uh, and the, the, the uh, non-profit and for-profit providers have generally speaking found mayors and governors and presidents to be um, easier to approach and more open uh, to their attempts at um, influence and more comfortable with their way of framing the, the issues than they do um, elected school boards, which these groups often see as as somewhat parochial and highly protective of the traditional ways of doing things. Right, but you know, but in the end, you're not a pessimist about school reform, um, and you end the book on that note. So, what makes you optimistic? Uh, what what is the, the sort of what is the optimism that you see? In what what for some people um, is is sort of a, a direction that they they aren't terribly comfortable with. What what makes you optimistic? Sure. Well, I mean, let me first say that it, whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic depends on which side of the bed I get up on in the morning. Half the time I get up on the pessimistic side, and then I'm nervous about the fact that advocates of public education and public investment in education are losing an edge that they once held and and um and that could uh, come at a cost um that that's that's you know that's significant but i but i i do you're right he swing around to an optimistic view in the book and, and it's a view that goes this way uh in order 
to simply survive and compete in these new arenas. Education advocates are going to have to uh, learn to engage more in multi-issue coalitions, learn to frame their vision and articulate their goals in ways that appeal to and find common ground with people who care about other issues, whether it's you know, global warming or social services or whatnot to explain to them what the links are between education and how these things can reinforce one another. So it's out of necessity, but I, but I also think it could be for the good. And that's because if you believe, as I do, that um, the way to really address educational needs in the country, and in particular those related to gaps based on income and race uh, and place, um, we need to pull levers beyond those that just exist in school districts and in schools. We need to have a multi-sector approach for dealing with these problems. So out of the necessity of having to build these multi-issue coalitions, I think may come a more coherent and ultimately effective education policy. Uh, Jeff Hennig is the author of The End of Exceptionalism in American Education, The Changing Politics of School Reform. Jeff, thank you very much for your time today. 